Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're joined again by one of our favorite guests, Michaela Hempen. And in the past, Michaela has shared with us the work that she's been doing with Blondie. And she's shared with us the project, her research on cribbing, and then uh, some of the further work that she's been doing to help Blondie transition from being a horse who's been trained in a command-based tradition, which shut down a lot of behavior and created a lot of emotional fallout, to a horse who really sparkles and enjoys the training. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Today, I'm going to ask Michaela to take the horse riding hat off partially, (laughs) only (laughs) partially, because the horses are involved in this, and to put on your the hat you wear for your day job, as it were, uh, in that metaphor. So, Michaela, welcome. And I think what we need to start with is to have you describe what you do for your day job. And then what we wanted to talk about was this whole learning curve as you've moved from your original training through the behavioral analysis and now into the work that you're currently involved in. So jump right in. Thanks, Alex. I'm excited to talk about that, but we'll need some some good guidance because my thoughts are still a little bit chaotic about it. So there are so yes. many different concepts that come in, and, and and that's part of that's part of what the purpose of this podcast was. I think when we were emailing back and forth was to yeah, say, yeah. well, let's just let's just have an afternoon and chat together, and maybe that will help to bring some of these threads together because you are exploring some very new areas for yourself. Yes, but I'm going to derail you right okay. from the start. <laughs> okay. Because I cannot I cannot uh, sit here without giving you an exciting update on Blondie. Very oh. very exciting. <laughs> which is very 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 preliminary so fingers crossed everybody but um, I went through we've gone through different some changes in how uh, the horses are organized, how the feeding is organized, etc. And I could implement a couple of changes. Uh, I went through a very brief training program with Blondie. And today I tested. So after teaching her a couple of things, so I let her into the area where the, the hay feeder is. And she started eating her hay without cribbing and I had the camera on the whole time. So she was on her own choice, uh, went to eat for 45 minutes. And during that whole time, there was not a single incidence of cribbing or wanting to crib or anything. Wow. So fingers crossed. I don't know what's going to happen during the day. I have the the surveillance camera on. um, So I will see. And Julia, who's there, will be reporting back to me. But it was very, very promising. Wow. wow. So that's yet another podcast. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of, it sort of links back to it because the concepts that, you know, we were planning on, on discussing in a way 
are connected because how we look at behavior, how behavior explained in the different sciences is, is connected in a way. So there, yes. there is a yes. touch point. But yes. I know you want to know more now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, but we, we are definitely going to have to have a, a follow-up podcast for Blondie. So we'll just, we'll just put that teaser out there. Right, so right. mega teaser <laughs> yes <laughs> for me as well because i don't know how this is going to develop i'm just so excited because this was uh, that's an even better teaser you know we yeah. don't know the end <laughs> no we don't know the answer yet <laughs> well you never know the you never know the end it's all mm -hmm. about process and i think that's one of the really important messages of all of this is you know tomorrow is another day and it may be a great day and you know the sun is shining or it could be a, a hurricane you never know, but training is about process and what you're helping. Us life is about process. Life is about process. <laughs> life is and learning. What, yeah. Yeah. Life is learning. And what you're helping us to see is how to, how to guide the ship as it were, lots of metaphors, how to guide the ship so that you can ask reasonable questions and test it and see and, and, and see changes emerging. But there's always tomorrow, and tomorrow, who knows? Anyway. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, teaser. Teaser. <laughs> right. So, you wanted me to explain a little bit my day job? Yes. Right. So, um, for, so for people to know, to know I, I studied veterinary medicine, um, but I was never working. I never worked in practice, so I always worked in, in research. And uh, for the last 15 years, in September, it will be 15 years, I'm working at the European Food Safety Agency. Uh, that is a, uh, a scientific agency that provides um, guidance or scientific opinions actually, so documents, basically assessments. They are risk assessments that inform uh, the European Commission or European member states, um, give them the scientific basis for legislation. And our realm is anything around food and food is uh, that includes you know the food that is that you're buying but it also includes food production primary production um, plant health animal health so animals you know they are eaten <laughs> uh, so that includes um, you know pesticides etc so my my area of expertise for the last uh, 15 years was mostly on microbiology. So that would be um, bacteria, parasites, viruses in food that make people sick. But, um, you know, thanks to all these people who, who engage, uh, who want to make the life of, of farm animals better, the legislators and politicians do want, you know, they feel pressured in, in, in a way to improve the legislation, to improve the life and the welfare of the farm animals. And this is more stronger now than it was before. And we received uh, quite a large number of requests from the European, actually from the European Parliament to give a scientific assessment of what the risks are, the welfare risks are for farm animals. And these assessments are the basis for the legislation. So in the coming years, the European Commission is going to revise all animal welfare legislation, farm animal welfare legislation. And 
part of this will be based on a scientific assessment of their welfare. Obviously not all of this, I mean, there are, but this is not up to us. So our assessment is, is only um, scientific. And we look at pigs, broilers, laying hens, horses, cattle, calves, you know, rabbits, you name it, fish. Uh, on primary production, during transport, also slaughter, you know, um, et cetera. So, and we get, like for the next 10 years, we are very, very busy. And because we are so busy, uh, I could raise my hand and say, look, I really want to do this. Give me a couple of those. <laughs> so um, I'm coordinating the, the mandate on laying hand welfare. Uh, and I work very closely with the sister working group that is uh, on broiler welfare. And we are, in, of course, involved, you know, following the other, all the other mandates. So in, in, in June, we'll have, or in July, will be published two opin huge opinions on transport of uh, basically the most important farm animals. So this is going to be a very, very big news also, I guess. Yeah, so I had, I had to, since this is not, I've not worked in, in animal welfare, I've not studied animal welfare, um, I, this was, is, is really new to me. So I had to learn a little bit um, the, the thinking, the, the research, um, the, what measures are taken, what type of studies are, are done, how, how do you assess the welfare of an animal? And I mean, to be clear, we are not talking about, are these, these, is it okay to eat these animals? That's, mm -hmm. not, that's not the point. The point is we have animals that are living on farms that are destined to be eaten in some way or another. And the question is, how can you make the life of those animals the best possible? And it's not so easy <laughs> to, to no. assess it. You know, it's not so easy to assess it scientifically. And, and there is a lot of, um, there's it's a lot of borderline between, you know, how much is it my ethics? How much is it um, legislation? How much is it just thinking what, you know, my own moral, my own ethics that I want the animal to be in that, to, to be happy all the time? Or how do I, what do I interpret into seeing if I go and visit a, a farm and I see something, you know, is it, can I objectively assess how, how the animal is, well, feeling is already difficult, you know, yeah. is it, is the welfare impaired or is the animal happy or is it unhappy? Uh, how much of it is my subjective assessment? How much of it can I can I assess objectively? And obviously, we aim for an objective assessment, but that is not entirely possible. So the the difficulty is to you know to ride the waves and see how far can I go into subjective assessments and ethics, and how far can I go into no, but we'll have to measure and be able to predict, uh, etc. And that's it's a fine line. <laughs> It reminds me of a Supreme Court decision or an opinion. Uh, it says, you know, when, when they were discussing pornography, it's very hard to define, but they know it when they see it. Yeah. 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 You know, what, where is the line? Where do you draw the line in any of yeah. these things in terms of welfare, in terms of uh, animal abuse, you know, all of these things where, you know, for me, it's very clear where my line is, but that's totally based on all of these things you were just saying, the, the ethical considerations, et cetera, et cetera. 
but what is the measure that will bring broad agreement is much more challenging to, to determine. Yeah, also thinking about the animals' preferences because, you know, the discussion about putting rugs on horses. Yes. You know, because I'm feeling cold, I put a rug on my horse. But the yes. horse may not want the rug at all. Mm. So also in terms of, uh, even if my ethics are, you know, wherever, high or, or low, wherever you want to put it, that doesn't necessarily mean that because I have a high ethics and I want all animals to be happy, my decisions may not mean to the animal that it's actually what the animal would want. Yes. Yeah. But I assume there are some things that are more obvious than others. You know, I'm not sure what the situation is in Europe, but here, because you mentioned three, the production, the transportation, and the slaughter. And here, the transport and the slaughter are the areas where the welfare is much more at risk even than the, the production. I don't know if that is the case in Europe. I think Europe is much more advanced in terms of welfare, but I'm not sure. And in the United States, we have the, the industrial production, the feedlots and so on. Mm -hmm. So, And I think, you know, Alex, in the States, I think there are places where the slaughter this may only be for the horses, though. They have to send the horses to Canada because there's a ban on slaughtering the horses yes. in many states. And so the horses have to travel all the way up to the western provinces where they get slaughtered. And the, or they go to Mexico. The transportation here is very, you know, like things as basic as how many hours are they allowed to be without water is a long time. And so... I don't know if that's, but those are like big things that I think But this are... is exactly the point, Dominique. So how many hours without water? So mm -hmm. they need to be transported. So actually, to assess the welfare, you'd say they should not be transported, okay? To ensure that there's no negative consequence, animals are not transported. Mm. That's the easiest thing, right? Mm -hmm. But then we know already that obviously this is not going to happen. Mm. So what do you do? Do you suggest something that you are certain that this measure would ensure that the animal is not suffering from negative welfare consequences, knowing already that this is not going to be implemented and then they can say what they can do whatever they want? Or are you suggesting something that is more likely to be adopted, knowing that there will be a, ne a negative welfare consequence, mm. but at least it's better than nothing? Right. So you have to gauge where do you where do you where do you put it? And then in order to help you to put that number there, which has to go in legislation, because legislation cannot be well, they're often vague, but ideally legislation should not be vague. They, what they want is a number. They want to know animals can be transported X hours. Mm. You know. So how do you find that number? Mm. That's where you need to find the, the research and saying, okay, who assessed, is there any study that assessed the, the welfare consequences of animal transport, you know, so many hours? So many hours, so many uh, animals in a space. Exactly. So you have the space, you have the time, you have the temperature, you have, so you need data on that. And especially for transport. And then the other thing is, you know, you say, okay, they cannot be fed and watered 
because of the way they are transported, you cannot get them. You know, horses are actually in a luxurious position because they are usually transported individually and you can feed them and, and water them. Mm. But you have a truckload of cattle or mm. pigs, mm. they cannot be watered or, or fed. So they, they are hungry and they are thirsty. Mm. But and it's then 40 you degrees say, outside. <laughs> right. Then you say, okay, you can only travel four hours and then you take them out and feed and water them. But then you have to unload and up load again now is that maybe not even better to leave them there and continue driving until you're there because actually it seems that the stress is worse the unloading and loading again mm. so you have to take that into account as well yeah and the outside temperature is also a factor i don't know if it's in there or not no no of course of course yes mm -hmm. all of that is in there mm. the vibration uh, considering whether they get motion sickness or mm. all these type of things and then you have to combine all of that to a number. You have to say all of this, considering all of that, you should not transport them more than four hours, but actually better it would be you wouldn't transport them at all. And the slaughter, I don't know if um, that, that that's the whole other area. I mean, maybe. Yeah, let's maybe not go there. Right. Yeah. Let's not go there. Yeah. Let's not go we there. We want people to be able to listen to this. Yeah, and then, you know, there's all the religion considerations right. too there, there's, so. There's this whole consideration of in the production, the housing, et cetera, et cetera. And how do you assess the welfare needs of an animal? And that's really what you've been puzzling over, hasn't it? That, yeah. all right, whether you're talking about a horse in, and do we keep horses in stalls individually? Do we keep them out in herds, et cetera, et cetera? Do we keep chickens in cages? In cages? Do we have them in free-range settings? How do you assess from the animal's perspective what the animal would prefer? And that's been my understanding is that's really what you've been exploring and researching what the how the current assessments are done. Yes, and these questions come about through my my, my journey in the sense that I, I come from veterinary medicine, which in terms of looking at behavior and welfare is strongly informed by ethology. And ethology is the science of observing and, and providing a detailed description of animal behavior. And mostly that is animals in the wild. And then from that observation, you are inferring to the behavior uh, of domestic animals, you know, that are yes. constrained in a certain in a certain way. So I so, would observe of, uh, in the wild, I would observe horses, I would see that horses live in social groups. And so I might infer that for the welfare of horses that having them living in social groups, rather than in individual stalls would give them greater quality of life. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So that, that is where, where I'm coming from. Okay. okay. So then I started learning from you, clicker training, and say, okay, it's not only observing behavior, but you can actually shape behavior. You can actually influence behavior. You can get new behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and then learning all about these sciences, about reinforcers and, you know, schedules of reinforcement and all whatnot. And 
and that and studies are can be done with with a single subject <laughs> instead of across <laughs> whole populations. I mean, that's just mind bending when you when you, that's not the background. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that that took a very long digestion and rumination process. Yes. With the... Scandalous notion. What do you mean? I don't need <laughs> to have a whole population to draw conclusions. <laughs> Exactly, and when I accepted that fact, <laughs> you know, I was open to 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 learn more about you know applied behavior analysis and and, and these approaches and um, and then there are all these questions coming up and, and I say okay this is so completely different from from my understanding of of behavior and where behavior you know what what's the reason for a behavior what why does an animal behave in a certain way why I do do I behave in a certain way? And the, the explanations are so vastly different. So whereas from my old me would have said, um, you know, the animal, the horse has a, has a need to be in a social group and has a need to, to graze 14 to 16 hours, putting the focus of that behavior inside the animal. You know, there's something inside the animal, whether in not me, but older, older, older generations would have talked about uh, the soul, you know, the soul of animals don't have souls, obviously. So a person has a soul and then that soul initiates some sort of behavior. And then that was replaced with, with the mind and the mind was basically put into the brain and the brain tells you now that, that you should be doing a certain behavior. So it's inside. And with inside the animals, it the was animal. instinct. Right, and the animals right. was all instinct, so it was right. all, all, they had no voluntary behavior, but it was reflexes, it was all reflexes, etc. Yeah. And all, all these things, they go, they go back to Aristotle and Descartes and, and all these old, old guys, and it's still, it's still, you know, what we still are, right. our language is still that, basically. Yeah. And then you have that dualism with mind and body and all these type of things, you know, and it's so common that this is, this is sort of you, yeah, of course, I mean, yeah. No question there. Yeah. I mean, it's so much a part of, sort of woven into the fabric of our language and what we've been exposed to that we don't even, we don't notice it, we don't think about it, we don't question it for the most yeah. part. Exactly. Exactly. And then, yeah, and, and then being exposed to, to all this um, behavior analysis and, and obviously a lot through you know, Blondie, Blondie is coming up again, of course, because this, <laughs> this, this, uh, yeah, this discrepancy of the, the explanation of stereotypic behavior in, uh, from, a, from a veterinary or ethologist point of view that, that there's something wrong in the brain or there's something wrong in the intestine or there's something wrong, you know, in the animal. And then having to learn that that actually doesn't make sense yeah. because with the experiments, we could influence that behavior that, an expert, if, if the explanation would have been a gastric ulcer, that would not, the behavior that Blondie gave us would not have happened. And the fact that we can switch it on and off. If the ulcer is, is causing the cribbing, yeah. behavior modification isn't going to resolve the cribbing because the ulcer is... Exactly. So changing the environment wouldn't have had that effect because the ulcer is there. I cannot yeah. treat the ulcer in 20 minutes. And you, you would not be able, as you say, to turn the behavior on and off through environmental manipulations. Yes. 
So, I mean, that was quite something to digest. <laughs> yeah, I remember those emails. <laughs> so I, I, I embarked also on trying to understand this concept of mind, you know, because I'm thinking that everything is in the brain and actually it's not. And then this, this difference of explaining the world with mind and, and brain commanding everything versus the environment cueing our behavior and we are responding to those changes that then again change the environment and then cue us again to change our behavior so this 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 approach of looking at it i love that to me that makes perfect sense mm -hmm. <laughs> it makes perfect sense so um i'm really glad i i i found that 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 way of explaining because it to me it makes it makes so much more sense so yeah, so I coming from from this ethology powered um, explanation of, of of behavior and 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 then going through clicker training and the exposure to all these smart minds and then I come uh, back now at at work and and uh, there's this welfare concept and I look at these studies again and. That they are doing to to assess welfare, and uh, a, a main point is which which is actually really lovely is to to ask the animal, you know. So you are you in order to find out what type of environment does the animal want to live in, and the notion of asking the animal actually instead of just saying you know that's your home, take it. Yes, but say I okay, know best. This is what you I know like. best. <laughs> yes, you know exactly. So. Um, it's a lovely notion to say, okay, let's let's ask the, the the chicken, let's ask the pig, let's ask the horse what which one they prefer. So I looked at the at the papers that uh, that were cited, and then I looked at the protocols, and I'm like, hmm, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know, but it seems to me this there is some problem there. Not being an expert, you know, I'm not a behavior analyst. I'm not. I have not done experimental uh, experiments uh, in, with the Skinner box, etc. But from a training, having the training experience, and knowing how important all these small details are, and I look at those protocols that are very rough. They are very lumpy. They are very. They're not refined at all. And I can see how much that can influence the, the answer you, you think you get from the animal when actually what you're doing is, is training the animal you know, to give a certain answer. And you're not aware because you don't know anything about training. So you think the answer gave you, you, you get an answer from the animal, but actually you told the animal to give you that answer. Can you give us an example of something you saw? Yeah, I was just going to say, would, would it be appropriate at this point to describe one of the procedures? Right. So um, they are basically at, at the core of assessing um, preference. Uh, you could say, well, it's a, it's a preference test, it's a choice test. So you could choose to, um, they call it a, a T maze or a Y maze, which makes sense. So you have a T, so you send the animal in through one corridor and then there's a, a junction and it can go left or right. And on both ends, there are, is, a, for example, a different housing. So if you'd have, let's say, chicken, and obviously there is some sort of preparation involved where the chicken can experience two different types of housing on their own leisure. 
so they, they they've experienced both of them and then you'll do the choice test where you send the chicken in and then they can choose to go either to the left side and say that is uh, an enclosure with a certain type of bedding or footing or nest or a, a perch you know. where they they can get up on yes exactly and then on the other on the other side you would have a similar housing but there's some variation but it should be more or less the same thing so you're talking talking about different types of nests or different types of perch or different height of perch so one at 15 centimeter the other one 60 centimeter for example and you would send them in and then you record uh, their preferences and you do that with a group and then you see you, you say then okay they prefer this one or that one that's one one way of doing it Okay. And you may know, I could also say the other example that you may know, which is the one with the horses where they were doing the Rollkur. Oh. And maybe that would be an interesting one for people to explain. Yeah, so yeah, I think what, you should describe that. So what they did is they wanted to find out whether horses find uh, being ridden in Rollkur position, so that's the overbent, hyperflexed um, position if they find it aversive. So they um, they also set up like a like a like a, a Y maze where they first they, they would show the horses, you know, what's what's the game, what's the whole thing. So the rider would drive into the the common trunk of the maze and then they go to the right and ride a 20 meter circle in rollcore position. Or they go into the left and right in a nose at the vertical position, walk or trot. Okay. And they repeated that a couple of times, randomized, also changed uh, sides, you know, not to have a preference of the horse for one side or the other. And, and then they would, so that's the, the pre preparation. And then the actual choice is they would ride in, stop at the junction. And the rider would drop the reins, would no longer give any cues with the legs, try to sit evenly and that and that the horse choose which one it would go. So that would be a choice test. And spoiler, 14 out of 15 horses chose the one where they were with the nose at the vertical or in front of the vertical. <laughs> so when was this done? I didn't know about this. 2009. It's a study in 2009 by a German. Um, scientist actually, but she did it at the University of Bristol, if I remember correctly. It's mm. interesting. So when you're looking at these studies, where, uh, how, and you say you know, people are teaching the animals to give the response that they want to see. So in the bird study with the tea and they're going to the different housing or the roll cure study, how is that learning taking place? So if, if you're saying that one of the problems with the studies is that the researchers don't understand that the animals are learning right. to give certain responses. So one difficulty is that that is also acknowledged that, that the scientists know is with these okay. um, choice tests is that obviously you only get a relative preference. So maybe the horse hates both of those outcomes. But it just hates one outcome more than the other. Right. Yeah. So it's just a relative, uh, you know, give me two horrible outcomes and one of them is maybe not. Yeah. Do you prefer that I slap your face on the right side or the left side? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's one big problem that, that is acknowledged uh, that, uh, with, with this type of 
with this type of study. Uh, and also you cannot, of course, compare things that are totally different, but that's normally not actually done. But I think that's one of the really big drawbacks is that you, you don't, yeah, it's, a, it's relative between the two options. Mm -hmm. So you are, you are still not really asking the animal. You are still saying, okay, I give you these two options, which one, you know, yeah. you want I'm more. I'm going to put you in a stall, horse. Would you like a window or no window? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But you still are in a stall. Right. 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 So that's that's certainly a, a big problem. I think the other problem with such studies is of that they are, so ethologists, they look at time budgets. So if there is, um, you know, a, a type of housing for a chicken, for example, a certain enclosure, and they try different uh, litter material, and so they send the, the chicken in and then they spend a certain time in this area or a certain time in that, that area. So, uh, and, and basically then, then they translate the time spent with preference. But then the difficulty is, I mean, some behaviors take a long time and other behaviors are very short. And you need, you know, you need certain behaviors. You absolutely want to do them, but once a day is enough. Yes, you don't, but they're still very essential. So if you give them only a very, there's only a short time allocation, but it's still very, very important to the animal. And they're trying to fix that by introducing a concept of strength of preference. So the first one is a qualitative test. The choice test is just says, you know, this or that. And strength of preference looks, it's a quantitative result. So how much do you prefer this one over the other one? And in order to do that, the idea is that the animal works for the outcome. Okay. So, um, you know, how, how many level presses before the door opens and you get, you know, into that environment, you get access to, a, to, to another rat or uh, how much of a weight can you lift? So one example is um, there was a study done with pigs, I believe, um, was one where I can't remember the exact details of the type of material they offered or the type of choices, but so the pig had access to different spaces. So I think one was uh, access to, uh, you know, to another pig, not directly, but through a, a window or a mesh or something. The other one was a comfortable lying area. And then there was uh, with bedding. I think it was, yeah, the other, that one was... <laughs> was rabbits, that was another one. No, the pigs was access to bedding material um, or an empty space, which was a control factor. In order to get access to the bedding material from the starting position was just an empty room, there was nothing. And then one room adjacent accessible through a door was bedding material and the others, there was another space uh, available to control for the extra space. So it's not the bedding material, but just extra space. And the, the pig had to learn to press his nose against the panel. And after a certain, I think it was a certain time or certain pressure, I can't remember, uh, the door opened and it could access the bedding material. I know one of the studies you shared with me, it was, there was a weight involved. So they, it was. Yeah, the weight, I think that was the rats. They yeah, had to the, go the, through, they had to lift um, a door. So the heavier the door that they would lift showed a greater preference for what was yeah. on the other side of the door. 
exactly. So there are different ways. So with the with the chicken, for example, they also did uh, the the hole they went through. They made it smaller and smaller and smaller. So they had to work harder to lift it. The mice or the rats had to lift a, a door, and the rabbits, I think, as well. Uh, and I think the pig was nose presses, number of nose presses um, at the first part, and then maybe also pressure. I can't remember. But so the thing is, they wanted to find out bedding material, and the the pig will go there and lie. And that is a long time duration, you know, so it's lying there. So if you want time, if you want frequency, so you have time allocation, but you don't have frequency because the animal is there like forever. So to get it out, they offered food at a certain interval. Mm, okay. You see? You oh. see? And that's where the problem comes in, in terms of where you need, you know, a behavior analyst who's going to look at this and say, uh, hang on a second. Mm. So the pig went in there, like comfortably on the bed. And then you provide food. He's going out, and the door closes. And then the they think they reset the animal to start again, but they don't consider that there is sort of a schedule effect, probably which we would need Mary Jesus or Claire to explain in more detail. But depending on when the the food is provided on what schedule and on what under which contingency, you know, you get a different result. Yes. So the pig is not necessarily preferring to lie on that bedding, but he has learned that a chain that if he raises this door, goes in, lies down, that he will then get access to food. Exactly. Yeah. And so he will gradually start to prefer that choice that's to the left, let's say, versus the one that's to the right, because the, the way the experiment has unfolded, the pig has learned that that choice leads to food more reliably than the other. Yes. 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 Yeah. And I think there are, there are so my, my, my doubt is that there are going to be a lot more, many more confounders, if you look at those, if you start looking at these yes. in, more, in more detail. And um, yeah, and there's a bit of a worry there then, you know, <laughs> on our measurements and on our decisions, you know, we have to redo them. I say, do we actually, what do we actually know about the preferences and, and how much they work for? So the current work I'm doing is for the laying hands. So we're looking at, at behaviors and there's a sort of a ranking of, of which behavior is more important to the animal. You know, is is there that they are exploring, walking, um, scratching, pecking, dust bathing? So all of these behaviors that an ethologist can describe so excellently. But then, if you say, okay, how my time budget? What's my goal? Because I want an, I want to create a husbandry system, a housing system, where the chicken can perform all the behaviors that we think are essential to the well-being. So I'm also thinking, if I were doing a, an ethogram and I were watching a chicken, chicken in a group or, say, a horse in a social group, in that social group, I might be seeing horses pinning their ears and chasing other horses away and showing other behaviors such as that. And in a stall, I might not see any of those behaviors. So I might mm -hmm. say, oh, a stall is provides greater welfare because my horse doesn't have is not spending time pinning his ears and chasing other horses away. You know, this reminds me of something when I first, first, first started in the horse world, 
so I had all these horses with Cavalia, right? I had this big farm and I had all these beautiful shelters built and some of the horses were right in front of my house and I had a little herd and there was this stallion. He was with other horses because he was really, he was like the last in the hierarchy. Some gildings could chase him away. And, and I noticed that the others kept chasing him away and he couldn't get in the shelter. So I thought, well, if I have this other paddock right next to it, the shelter is there. I'm going to take him there. And, you know, sure enough, he's going to like it because he's not, he's going to have access to all the hay and the water and nobody's going to chase him away. So I take him out of the herd. I put him in the, that, that paddock, which is right next to the other one, yep. but he's alone. He, of course, he hated it. You know, he screamed for a whole night because he wanted to be back in the herd where he was being chased around, but he was with his herd. And so, you know, that was a big lesson for me where I heard, you know, where I really learned that horses are herd animals. But yeah, so sometimes you can think, like you said, Michaela, your experience, the way you interpret a situation is like, oh, poor horse, he's being chased around. That's not good. He must not like this. But then you put him in this environment where you think he's going to be really comfortable and he's not, he's miserable. Yeah. And that's just because you, it's your own projection of what, you know, you think is, is a, a comfortable situation for a, um, a being. Yeah. So you, you're looking at what are the behaviors that we see? What are the behaviors that are absent? I'm glad I don't have your day job. <laughs> no, it's exciting. <laughs> it is but exciting, it, but it's complicated. The approach is you look at the behaviors or the, the range of behaviors that you'd see in an unexposed population, right? So you'd have, what would a group of horses do if they were, you know, they had in the prairies, they have lots of space, no human intervention, no other, you know, no tourists going there taking pictures so they are on their own they can manage themselves so you could you have a hide somewhere in a bush and make your notes and do your ethogram and and observe what they are doing and i think that does give you good information to infer to what what our horses need yes as a baseline as a baseline yeah and then you have to do go systematically and assess all the different aspects because that's their whole life. I mean our life is also complex. It's not only about our house and and you know what temperature our house is and if the you know it's you know is, is the fridge full what is in the fridge? Is there something I like or is there only spinach? And um, so there there are so many aspects and of course it's, it's complex. And these days you may be studying a population that's actually under stress because it's living in an environment that's not actually an environment that's optimal for that species. So you're doing an ethogram on an animal that's living, say, in a very, I don't know, hot, arid conditions. And if, if given their druthers and, the op and there were other options available, you would find them in very different habitats and thinking of some of the rewilding experiments where they thought that certain species were only found in deep woodlands because that's 
only where they had observed them, but in the rewilding projects, they started to find these insect species were turning up in meadows and along the edges of woodlands because suddenly those habitats were available to them. And so they were having to rethink the requirements of some of these species. You know, the the first day when we took my horses down to the summer paddock this year, there were lots of bugs that day. It was very hot. Usually in May, it's not that hot. If you had looked at those horses, observed those horses for the first time, you would have said horses are not grazing animals. (laughs) (laughs) because there was lots of beautiful fresh grass and they did not graze graze they just ran you know for I mean after 10 minutes we just took them out of there because obviously this was not going to be a transition session for you know getting them used to well they, they weren't getting used to eating grass they weren't eating the grass they were just running from the bugs but if you had observed them that day and you knew nothing of horses, you would have said horses, they like to run, but they don't graze. Yeah. They don't like grass. And, or, you know, the day they after. they like to be out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. They wanted back in. I mean, the, the, the speed at which they <laughs> came back up was like, <laughs> but, you know, two days later was nice, cool and shady. And, you know, as soon as they were in there, their nose just went down and they grazed well, these are all the factors you have to you have to put in. So you on these are the conditions you have to take into account. So, and that's probably also a problem with the type of experiments and that they are doing because if you do one experiment at a certain day, you know you may get a different result. Well, one with horses that have a different learning history. Mm. The other one that I think was really interesting. It's it's a, it's a little bit a tangent, but actually it's it's also part of it you know remember that that experiment with the children and the marshmallow the marshmallow test yes 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 it's great great uh great choice to talk about that yeah, yeah. so where so quick quick reminder if i remember well so the the children were you know told they can have a marshmallow right now or if they wait 15 minutes they get and don't eat it they'll get two yes so they most of the children and uh, they they actually took the they couldn't resist so they took the the marshmallow and those who didn't uh, they you know they did all these type other other things trying not to look at it and they had all these behaviors that would prevent them from eating eating the marshmallow apparently there was there was another one uh, with one i recently read was with uh, you know these pretzels Okay. They were. They were. They were. They. they there was a, a group of children. They had the pretzels in front of them, and there were some who did not have. They didn't see them. They were just told where they were, but they were not right. Right there, and those who saw them, they ate them quicker than those who didn't see them. As I recall the studies, they then followed some of these children and drew the conclusion that the children who who did not take the the eat the marshmallow but waited had greater self-control were higher achievers in school that the marshmallow test was a predictor of school performance yeah, exactly yeah. so huge leap <laughs> <laughs> hugely yes. huge inference <laughs> yes 
Right, but uh, the interesting, so, and this, obviously then they said, you know, animals cannot do it, they're impulsive and they would eat immediately, uh, etc. And then there was, I think, Maser uh, in a study, he trained with a fading procedure, he trained pigeons, I believe, to do exactly the same thing and they could very well wait, you know, if, if they are trained and given the repertoire, they were not impulsive, they could choose that. They could but choose the, the pigeons to wait. Could they could the uh, delayed reward. Yes, same as the kids. And okay. wasn't it if you, if you, because they, you already sort of gave the punchline that they, when they observed the children who were waiting, they saw all of this repertoire of behaviors that these children had that help them to resist the marshmallow. They could look away. They right, they had would, something to do and they, they, they yeah. knew how to. Oh, I don't want to derail you too much, but I'm very curious to know how they taught a pigeon to choose the delayed reward. Uh, there you got me. I wanted to read the paper before, but I didn't. <laughs> okay, well, we'll keep it for the for another podcast because that's pretty amazing. Well, you have to ask Mary probably to explain. <laughs> okay. But I, I read another uh, book in, on my on my voyage uh, to understand this whole thing. That's Howard uh, Rachelin has a book on judgment, decision, and choice, and he tries to to make sense of this. You know, the behavior review of of the decision choice paradigm and and the cognitive and trying to make sense of or trying to merge somehow these these two uh, and he did something really interesting so he said uh, in in this type of delay so he said one way of looking at actually is uh, in probabilities so to to choose the the reinforcer so to choose the pretzel or marshmallow right now is because you're also very certain that you get it mm. whereas the delayed you're not certain that you get it mm. you know so the probability of the event occurring is different one to mm. the other mm-hmm. and he said if you would change the uh, it's also related to the value so the value changes as well so a the value of a reinforcer that is delayed is lower mm. compared to if you would get it now. So the same marshmallow now is not the same marshmallow you get in, in, in 15 minutes. That one would be smaller. Mm-hmm. It has reduced value, which was also interesting. But the yes. most interesting piece was if you, would, if you would go back in time, so you'd say the decision point is, is zero at point zero, you either choose to get the reward now or you wait 15 minutes. But if you go further back to minus five, so instead of now, you would have asked already an hour earlier. So both of them basically are delayed. Okay, Okay. yeah. If you do that type of choice, then it's actually much easier for the person to wait for the bigger reward. Okay. Because they have to wait for both. Because then if I wait 10 minutes or half an hour, you know, I can also right. wait half an hour. Yeah. But if it's right in front of your nose and the probability is higher, you would choose to take the one that you are certain that you get it instead of the lower probability that maybe, you know, maybe there is an, a fire alarm and everybody has to leave the building and you don't get your two marshmallows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or, sure. or you're a small child and your learning history is that grown-ups are uh, inconsistent and they'll tell you one thing, but it doesn't happen. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that that was interesting actually to if you if you move it a bit further you know further in time and that animals can can that, that was the other experiment that he did actually it was super interesting um so he tried to do the same thing with the with the with the pigeons um so he uh, if i remember correctly so he trained um a pigeon to uh, there was a signal um to get the reinforcer now or so the signal the red light came on and he would peck and get the reinforcer or there was a, a white light and no reinforcer i will not get it together uh, and then there was a, another so basically what he did was there were two decision points at the first first training the, the animal learned that with the red light and packing, you get the immediate reinforcer. Uh, at, and, the, and the white light, the reinforcer will be bigger, but delayed. Okay? okay. And then there was another decision point. So on the same line of thinking of making the decision earlier in time, so not right now on the spot, but earlier in time, uh, where the animal could choose between a signal that would switch off the red light or the or the the delayed response and the pigeon would choose the delayed response by switching off the red light. It's probably not going to make total sense, but the idea in this is that the pigeon learned same, if the pigeon had the option to make sure that this temptation never occurred by switching wow. off the red light, it would be able to choose the delayed reinforcer that was bigger. But if the temptation was right there, it would choose the temptation. So if I don't have the bag of pretzels right in front of me, I can wait until tomorrow uh, when I will go to the grocery store and get a, two bags of pretzels. That Which is exactly where, how we build habits, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you know you want to go jogging in the morning and you never manage, you put your shoes right at the bed, you know, before yep. going to sleep. And then you wake up and your shoes are right there and you go running. Or if you don't want to eat too many cookies, you don't buy them. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. Yep. So the pigeon could do that. Yeah. You know, knowing that it will get a big There's no cookies the in the end. house. <laughs> yeah. I found that extraordinary. So yeah. That, that if the, if it if the temptation was right there and there the pigeon is no different from us, you know, we also choose the the immediate reinforcer. Yep. But if the option never comes comes your way, you know, the red light doesn't come on because in an earlier decision, you know, last you know yesterday I've decided that I don't want the red light to come on, so I switch it off yesterday, yes. and then I'm not tempted and I can wait for the big reinforcer and the pigeon can do that. Hmm. Wow. Wow. It is not so, simple. It's not simple. So you know these uh, all these choices that that they they if they have the repertoire to do all these choices, my God, they could tell us so many things. <laughs> yes. And so, how is this received by your colleagues who are who have not uh, had the pleasure of learning how environment can change and influence behavior, and who um, are are they because this makes, it's already, it was already complicated, but in a way, when you're saying, well, now you're training the animals and you're, there's a new body, there's, you're, you're influencing the results. It's even more complicated. Are they, 
happy to see these nuances or is it like oh my god go away I mean, go away <laughs> probably we don't really the letter <laughs> we don't want to hear it probably <laughs> really the letter <laughs> the letter no i think and, clarity... and we haven't even talked about a study of one right right yeah no that 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 was probably the bigger hurdle <laughs> No, I think clarity would be welcomed by everybody. I mean, if there was a design, you know, that would give better answers, everybody would love that because the discussions are so difficult. Another big topic, right, that I'm, you know, trying to solve in my head is, is about stress. You know, what's stress? I'm sure you don't want me to stop here. You want to listen to Michaela's discussion about stress but you're going to have to wait until next time to listen to the rest of the conversation. If you want to learn more about the studies that Michaela has been talking about, she has provided an extensive list of references, which are available in the show notes. Go to equiosity.com to find them. And do listen next week. In addition to the discussion about stress, Michaela will be talking about an important opportunity for behavior analysts to become involved in developing procedures for assessing animal welfare. The European Food Safety Agency that Michaela works for has issued a call to tender. Michaela will be talking about that next time. You never know who is listening to these podcasts or how they're going to be shared, but our hope is that they will help to get this information out to people who can help with the development of the guidelines that can really create a positive welfare difference for animals. That's going to be in the next episode. In the meantime, enjoy your training and have fun with your horses.